Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature sculptor, printer, conceptual artist, Willie Cole. He lives and works in New Jersey. His work uses context and references from African and African-American representation. His recent special projects and collaborations in 2021 include Mosaic with Todd's, Salon du Mobile Milan, and Dark Room with Comme de Garçon in Tokyo. Group exhibitions in 2021 include Before Yesterday We Could Fly, Metropolitan Museum of Art, The Shadow We Create at the Cameron Museum, Contemporary Print, 20 Years at High Point Editions, Minneapolis Institute of Art, and There's There There, Hauser and Worth, Southampton. In 2020, he participated in a group exhibition titled Junk, Massimo Di Carlo in London. In 2019, Willie Cole Beauties opened at the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University and a solo exhibition titled Willie Cole, Bella Figura at Alexander and Bonin in New York. His work has been the subject of several one-person museum exhibitions that include the Museum of Modern Art, the Bronx Museum of the Arts, Miami Art Museum, and College of Worcester Art Museum. Please visit CerebralWomen.com for his expanded bio and his website, for his extensive CV. Thank you for joining and listening to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast featuring Willie Cole. Willie, thank you so much for joining me on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. When did you discover your artistic passion? Oh, wow. The key word in that sentence for me is passion. I would say my family discovered me as an artist when I was three years old. It became a passion for me because it was more of just, so it was like breathing. But I think as I became uh, moving towards being an adult and having the need to have a life outside of you know, being cared for by parents, it became a passion at that point. It's great that your parents saw that in you and let that blossom. Yes, yes. Well, my father was a prolific doodler and... He told me just recently, a few weeks ago, that I probably got it from him because when I was a little kid, I would see him doodling in the newspapers, like drawing glasses on the photographs or extending the photos down into the newsprint to the uh, text. And at three years old, they found me copying the Sunday comics from the newspaper. As you were getting older, do you recall if there were any particular artists that interested you, that inspired you? You know, as a little kid, it was just, it was, of course, everything that was a cartoon on TV. Those were my first drawing lessons, sitting down, copying cartoons as I ran across the screen. By the time I got to high school, it was uh, probably Peter Max and Salvador Dali. 
the two artists I knew best in high school. I knew Peter Max because of the Beatles movie, uh, Yellow Submarine. And I don't know how I came across Salvador Dali, but he was definitely a big inspiration in high school. And then that led me to Abdul Mati Clairween, who was an illustrator who did the Miles Davis Bitches Brew cover and the Santana Braxton cover back in the 70s. And he became like my favorite painter and illustrator through college because my major in college was illustration and graphic design. How would you define your practice? Today, I think of my practice as kind of just like a letting go kind of experience. I can't think of a single word to describe it. I mean, my first thought was it a spiritual practice, but it's only spiritual in the fact that it's based totally on faith and feelings. I mean, I make a schedule, a work schedule, but it's not based on projects, it's based on hours of the, day, of the day. And I just live with the things that I'm working on. And they call me when it's time to add something. I just feel it and just do it. So practice, maybe the word is intuitive. <laughs> Have you always favored sculpture? No, not at all. As I said earlier, in college, my area was illustration and graphic design. And as a kid, I did a lot of portrait commissions for people in graphic design. But uh, in the 70s, um, I was working in the theater department at the University of Delaware as an actor and then a graphic designer. And Jean-Michel Basquiat burst onto the scene. So I'm living out of state, you know, in the, in the near south, I guess I can call it. So I come back to New York to see his work and to see also to see uh, Monet exhibition that year, talking about 1978. And those, those two moments, especially the Basquiat moment, showed me that my painting was not in step with the current trend at all, because I was very inspired by the Impressionist painters by the time I was like probably 19 years old. So my painting style and my pastel work looked very much like a cross between, I would say, Monet and, uh, and Van Gogh. And I took, I took the perspectives of the uh, Japanese woodblock artist Hokusai, tried to show vast uh, views of landscapes, crooked trees and all that, and detailed waterfalls. And um, it wasn't the thing. The world was moving towards something that was very childlike to me in presentation, and I didn't see my work fitting in that. So I said, I got to do something else. So I started doing sculpture. What type of materials do you use? Well, initially, I was using anything that was small and rusty. I started out making jewelry for myself out of small, rusty objects I would find on the street. And I was collecting uh, wood, logs, and things like that, and combining construction materials like nails uh, with logs. I was, at that time, actually thought of myself as more like a modern primitive and was trying to create a primitive look using uh, throwaways from uh, modern uh, building materials. So I would raid construction sites and use PVC pipes and nails and aluminum studs and wood. It's a strange story because at that time in my life, the image that I produced most were the images of dogs. Like my first show in New York at the Little John Smith Gallery was called Dog Days of August because all of my sculpture, sculptures were sculptures of dogs. And I used my studio at that time was an industrial building. My neighbor made air-conditioned ducts. So I had access to lots of sheet metal. So that was probably my dominant material. Now that I think about it, it was a sheet metal, weaving it together because they, their throwaways would be very narrow strips, like one inch or less strips. And I would weave those together to make uh, animal forms. So that was my first sculptural material as a so-called professional. 
I was introduced to your work at a, a show you had a, maybe three years ago, and it was an interesting display of shoes. Yeah, that's kind of the thing now. It's kind of on the line. You know, it's like it's a, art is a business, and people think of me now as the guy who makes art out of his shoes, but I'm actually doing other things and reaching for other things all the time. But the shoes came as a result of having a show at Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania in the late 90s and wanting to make something out of sneakers, but not having enough sneakers to, to make what I felt coming on. So I went to the local thrift store and discovered a high heel shoe. And it just kind of took over my life for a few years. <laughs> I grew up with uh, all women in my life. You know, uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young. I had a sister, older sister. Uh, my grandmother was a single woman. My great-grandmother was a single woman. So I was raised to be a little prince and a little gentleman, but all these ladies wore high-heeled shoes. <laughs> and even to this day, my mom still collects miniature high-heeled shoes. I guess it may have been, I don't know, in the blood or in, the, in destiny for me to just explore this shoe more. Do you listen to music while you're working? Uh, sometimes, you know, over the period of my life, of course, there have been periods where I listen to a lot of music. Now it depends on the stage of work because I am really interested in feeling the energy from the materials that I use. And sometimes that requires silence and no distraction. But if I'm already rolling in something pretty good, and I'm in a finishing stage, like a polishing or a brushing or a dusting, then I can put on some music. If you weren't a visual artist, what other career do you think you would have chosen? Oh, well, I am a visual artist and I have maybe two other unfulfilled careers that I still work at. And one is being a writer, and the other one is being a musician. I still do both of those things. Uh, I try to do them daily. I try to do these three things daily. The music gets at least an hour a day, and the writing gets at least an hour a day. So those would be, and between those two, I would say a musician would be the one that I would, would like to uh, be more out with. How do you keep learning? You keep learning by continuously being curious, of course by believing in the possibilities that you set for yourself and proving to yourself every day that you can learn more and more. And looking for that surprise in every turn, that becomes a lesson for me. Again, my major in school was graphic design and illustration. Of course, I had sculpture in the foundation years like with clay and plaster and casting. But the things that I do now just came from believing I could do it. It started with being able to see things differently. It just happened one day where I was suddenly seeing everything in a different way. I'm not sure what caused that, but now I feel that any material is potential uh, art material for me. And I don't, I don't live with uh, any visual creative limits. What does your workspace look and feel like? I used to say it was an indoor junkyard, <laughs> and it it's probably still is that. Right now, I'm, I'm in a 4,000-square-foot house, and I probably use the majority of that as a studio. So the great room is part of my main studio. And I separate materials because I want to force perception by limiting what I see. So my studio that's in the main house is right now is only for guitars. So I don't have any other material in that space except for guitars. I'm working on a commission with Yamaha guitars. They gave me 75 guitars to make sculptures. So that space is dedicated to that. But I have a barn and the second floor of the barn is only high heel shoes. And as I said, I don't, want to, I don't want to make any compromises in the ability to perceive things. I want to force myself to learn to see and perceive 
for example, if I had the guitars and the shoes in the same studio and I need to make an ear on a guitar, I'm going to say, hey, that should make a good ear. So that to me will be a compromise. So I keep each space for different material. I have another space that's just for water bottles and another space that's just for woodwork. When you're creating shoes versus guitar, what is it that inspires you in a morning or an afternoon to work on the shoes or the guitar? Oh, sometimes it's a dream. But in the course of the day, I will hit both of them because I start, I, I live on the second floor. I come downstairs, I'm in the gallery, and the gallery is filled with examples of many things. Like Because my house is my studio now, the house that's not studio is all showroom, so it's all my work. So walking through there, I get to experience what I've done uh, over the past, even I would say today, past 15 years, based on what's on the walls now. And then I just walk through the house, so I see everything in, in one sweep of the entire house. And if something grabs me, that's where I start. I look for one stroke each day. I'm happy with one stroke each day. I mean, I, I like to finish something in one day when I can, but that's not always. I try to get at least one piece a week that I do in one day. But like if like yesterday, I walk into the uh, to the guitar space and I saw stuff I hadn't seen before. So I worked there for two and a half hours. And then I felt content enough to leave there and go to another part of the studio. So I, I wait for the pieces to uh, call me. I try and work not to force force things. Do you ever think about who your audience is while you're creating? Yes, I'm glad you had that last part. I think about the audience, like I had the studio visit I have coming tomorrow, I think about who's my audience tomorrow. But in the creative process, I think I'm the audience. Uh, I had a friend years ago who was an art dealer. And he said to me, if you can't freak yourself out, you can't freak anybody else out. So I am the audience during the creative process. How do you define Black art? Ah, that's a good question. You know, Black art is that term, people are defining it differently every day. You know, for me, in my age, when I was in my 20s, Black art was art that showed images of the Black community. For me today, personally, there's not really such a thing as Black art. There's more like Black artists. So I guess Black art is the product of Black artists, but the art that Black artists make is just art. Black folks in general, we've been in search of identity for so long that we pull ourselves out of bigger pictures and put ourselves in boxes as moments of pride, of expression. But the only thing that makes our art Black is our race. So I, I accept that because that's the time I live in. But I really think that uh, art is the product of connections to creative creativity, the creative spirit in the universe. And it doesn't come with a label based on race or gender. But in terms of marketing, marketing terms, you know, they put those on us. And I understand that. What do you enjoy most about being a visual artist? I enjoy the freedom. I mean, I, I'm a visual artist of a particular kind because I know a lot of visual artists who are very successful who are also college professors. That's a whole different experience. You know, I'm a visual artist exclusively, you know, since, well, I would say since the 70s. So I have had to live totally on my optimism and my faith and my own abilities since the 70s. And I enjoy that. I enjoy the challenge and I definitely enjoy the success of it. Even more, more personal than that, I enjoy my connections to what I think of as uh, the creative energy 
you know, in the world today. It's like uh, gravity is a force. People talk about gravity as a force in the universe. I think creativity is the same kind of thing. It's a force in the universe. And I am pleased to be able to access that force and to allow it to express itself through me. What are you excited about now? You have some shows coming up, right? I have shows coming up. But I'm, I'm actually excited about different things. You know, as I said, my, my whole life is just about creativity. It's not just about drawing and painting and sculpture. I'm on the verge of learning a song called uh, Spanish Romance, classical guitar song, and I'm so close to it now. So I'm very excited about that. In terms of the visual art world, I'm excited about my recent connections to the Todd's uh, Academy in Milan because they commissioned me to make furniture out of their throwaway shoe parts. And it was so successful that they are now considering making an addition of some of those furniture pieces. So I'm excited about that. Amazing. What was that like working on and just thinking through how to combine the materials to create furniture? It was like when you join a jazz band or maybe a quintet and they give you the, the sheets so you learn all the songs and now you're in the band and playing the song, but now it's time for your solo and nothing's written down. That's, that's what it was like. <laughs> I, was, I felt like I was a soloist and I had to improvise on the spot successfully because they gave me 10 days for production and I didn't know what materials I would have. I knew they made things out of leather, but I didn't know how much of anything I would have or any colors, anything. So it was quite an experience. It taught me that I still have a lot of my 20-year-old chutzpah, even though I'm no longer 20 years old, because I worked eight hours a day focused on a single piece or a single project. Whereas where I'm here in my studio at home, I usually work four hours, but I'm doing more than one thing at a time. And then I go back in the evening and I work from like 11 o'clock to three in the morning. So I still get the eight hours in, but in Milan, it was a concentrated. I would start in the morning, leave my hotel like at eight o'clock and return at six o'clock at night. And I didn't take lunch breaks. So it was, it was a intensity training workshop in many ways. <laughs> How many pieces of work did you have to create? Uh, I made five, five pieces in 10 days. I made uh, two tables, a chair and a couch and a vase of flowers. The vase of flowers is, was made out of uh, handbag straps and shoe forms. And the table was made out of unsewn moccasins on wood and shoe forms. Shoe forms became the legs of the table. And the couch was made out of handbags, shoe, rubber shoe soles, and unsewn moccasins. And the chair was made out of all unsewn moccasins. That's the signature shoe, is the Gomino shoe, which is a moccasin. So I try to use that as much as possible. I'm trying to envision a vase. Does it hold water? I mean, are these dry flowers? No, no, the flowers are not real and the vase is not real. So I group the shoe forms together and the shoe form is the thing that goes in the shoe to give it the shape. Some people use them to stretch shoes when the shoes are feeling tight. They also use it to shape the shoe when they're making shoes. So a bunch of those together became the vase. The handbag straps are wrapped around lengths of galvanized steel 12 gauge wire to help it stand up vertically like a flower. So they're twisted around that. It's almost like a macrame technique, I guess. 
And at the top, they are knotted in a way where they become, uh, you know, small buds and leaves. And then there are some cork shoe soles that are stuck down on top of those that become like larger petals of flowers. Fascinating. And this is going to be our last question. And that is, how do you want your art to impact the way people think? Ah, well, in the creative process, at times, depends on the material, but when I was working with scorches and irons, which was kind of my signature thing for many years, a lot of people still think that's my best work. I would tell myself that I was discovering or uncovering an ancient civilization called the cult of the domestic and imagining that I was an archaeologist discovering a civilization. So I would imagine people would find this work years from now, decades, centuries from now, and think that there were actually people here who use the iron, as I do in my art, for scarification. They made their deities out of irons, those kind of things. So that was the fantasy of memory back in the, I would say, the 90s. Today, I just think of my work as being just a product of my imagination and that it will inspire people to see things differently. Like I've taught my two of my kids to see the way that I see. I mean, we were once at a Thanksgiving dinner and we saw a monkey on the dining room table that wasn't there. <laughs> but my daughter saw it too. I said, see that monkey? And she saw it. So teaching people to see things differently since everything is an illusion anyway, you know, we're all just a bunch of little dots floating around at various speeds, but we see things as solid. We see ourselves as different than each other, but we're all actually the same grouping of dots, just vibrating at different speeds. So to allow people to take more control of their perception, the way they see themselves, where they see the world, not that they have to see themselves in any, any grotesque way or see themselves as dots, but to recognize that this is all an illusion. It's a refreshing way to, to look at the world. It's different, you know, and less complex, sort of simplifies it. Yeah, once you can break it down to that awareness, then you actually have more power in connecting, relating, and sharing energy because you're not seeing boundaries and borders based on shapes and labels. I mean, if I tell you that's a chair, that's all you'll ever see is a chair. But if you get past that, then you recognize it's wood and cotton and leather, and it's woven techniques. So, so now that it's taught you so much more once you strip this label away. And if you break it down to the molecular level, it gets even more intense than that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that insight, and I appreciate that perspective making me think. Yeah, a lot of madness in the art world. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, art will save us, as they say, you know. Anyway, thank you so much, really. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.